In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome back to the Bravo Docket. Today we're going to talk about I guess, the news that's been on everyone's mind this week, and that's Jen Shaw pleading guilty to the criminal charge against her. On Monday, July 11th, Jen Shaw pled guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud. We got a ton of messages. I feel like social media was just blowing up on Monday. Crazy, crazy. And you guys wanted an episode on this, so we are doing a bonus episode this week about her plea. So what were your initial thoughts? Do you want to share any and how you felt anything? Well, when I first saw it, I thought it was probably not reputable information. So I went and looked it up for myself and I just couldn't believe it. I really expected her to go all the way to trial. It was the week before trial. Jury selection was going to start on July 18th, which is this Monday, which I think is when we're going to release this episode. And they had argued experts, they had argued all the pretrial stuff. And so we were all ready to go. I was really, really surprised. Yeah, same. Part of me was relieved. I was like, okay, I don't have to fly to New York now. But part of me was like, oh my God. And then and then we had an episode that had to be released that day. And it was like, there's, there's no way we're going to finish this. It's just, it was too good. There was, it was crazy. I Yeah, I read that she pled guilty. I was like, whoa. And then I had to read everything I could about it to try and figure out anything, anything. So yeah, let's let's give a quick recap. This is from the LA Times. This explains what she pled guilty to. So U.S. Attorney Damian Williams, after the plea was accepted or Jen Shaw pled guilty, called Jen Shaw a key participant in a nationwide scheme the targeted elderly vulnerable victims. I'm going to pause right there because it was 55 and over. And I want to shout out, I um, met up with a Bravo fan yesterday, Shannon, and she listens to this podcast and she's like, I'm in my 50s. Can we stop calling us elderly? (laughs) Anyway, I wanted to note that. It just sounds worse when you call people elderly. Anyway, these victims were sold false promises of financial security, but instead Shaw and her co-conspirators defrauded them out of their savings and left them with nothing to show for it. Assistant U.S. Attorney Kirsten Ann Fletcher said that Shaw acted as a lead broker 
and she directed what sales workers said to their victims and shared in the illegal profits. She used some of the money to pay for a New York City apartment where she lived and for other personal items. She agreed to forfeit $6.5 million and paid $9.5 million in restitution. So from 2012 to March 2021, she engaged in fraud. She sold bogus services that were promoted as capable of enabling people to make substantial amounts of money through online businesses. She delivered lists of people to purchasers of the, quote, business opportunity scheme. And it actually consisted of others who had previously paid to create their own online businesses. She lied to the individuals about how much they could earn after buying the business services, and she lied about the purported success of others who had bought the services. She began operating a Manhattan-based sales floor that sold the fraudulent products. And this kind of explains why they filed in SDNY at all, and we explained that in our first episode that we covered on Jen Shaw. She controlled the day-to-day operations, At the Manhattan sales floor from 2018 to 2020, she moved some of its operations to Kosovo to dodge law enforcement and regulatory scrutiny. She took various steps to hide her role in the fraud. She incorporated her business entities using third parties' names. She instructed others to do the same. They used encrypted messaging applications to communicate with each other. And she made numerous CAF withdrawals structured to avoid currency transaction reporting requirements. Fletcher said that Shaw told one co-conspirator to lie under oath. That's clearly uh, Stu Jane. Yeah. When questioned by the Federal Trade Commission and provided him with written talking points to follow during the deposition. There were tax returns that showed she underreported her proceeds from the fraud by hundreds of thousands of dollars. She acknowledged during her plea that she had undergone treatment two years ago for alcohol and depression. We really encourage you to go back and listen to our previous Shaw and Order episode, the sentencing episode, where we talk about the sentencing submissions and plea deals of the co-defendants. And in contrast to what Jen Shaw pled guilty to, Stu Chains pled guilty to three counts. So Jen Shaw pled guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud that involved telemarketing, Again, the legal term is elderly, but we don't think you're elderly if you're 55. (laughs) And to be clear, many of them were in their 70s, so much, much older than that by a couple decades. But Stutain's pled, and Stuart Smith is his actual name, he's pled guilty. He initially pled not guilty, but then on November 19th, 2021, pled guilty to three counts, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, money laundering, and obstruction of justice for lying to the Federal Trade Commission in the deposition about his previous activities. And it seems pretty clear, like Ceci said, that that's what was mentioned in Jen's plea by the prosecutors. Originally, Jen and Stu were both charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and then conspiracy to commit money laundering. It seems Stuart got added the obstruction of justice charge and Jen, her second charge, the money laundering charge, was dropped as part of the plea. Why do you think the second charge was dropped? Also, how come she didn't get, I mean, I'm sure this was negotiated, but she didn't get a obstruction of justice for lying charge. They claim that she instructed one of the co-defendants to lie. So what are your thoughts? So to the question about instructing Stuart Smith to lie under oath, I think clearly when she was still set to go to trial and she was maintaining her innocence, she was going to use that sworn testimony of Stu Chains against him. I'm sure her defense was saying, well, you never said that 
Jen Shaw was involved in any of this when you previously testified under oath and now you've changed your mind just so you can get a better plea deal? How can the jury trust you? So I definitely think that by getting Stuart Smith to admit that he lied under oath and that she had instructed him to lie under oath, then he's got that charge. They can bring it up. They can still say, well, you lied under oath before. Why wouldn't you be lying under oath now? But he obviously gave them the specifics of it. So that was going to be part of, I'm sure, the prosecution's case saying, look, she's been trying to hide this for a long time. She knew it was illegal. She even gave Stuart Smith specific instructions on how to lie under oath. This woman is defrauding everyone, you know, so on and so forth. So I think there's that. And then what was your second question? Well, no, it's just interesting that they didn't. I I know this probably goes to this, my second question as well, why they dropped the second charge, the money laundering charge. But like neither of them had the obstruction of justice for lying charge in the initial indictment. But Stu got it and he pled guilty to it. I I'm would imagine they would want to. Yeah. Make her plea guilty to as much stuff as possible. Well, I mean, yeah, we can't know for sure what was going on in everyone's heads. But Stu capitulated very quickly which was smart on his part, gave all the information, pled to three charges instead of just one. But I don't recall seeing anything in Stu's plea about him forfeiting millions and millions of dollars. Jen Shaw is, according to her plea deal, going to forfeit, which means just fork over right away $6.5 million in proceeds. So I don't know if he didn't have that money to negotiate with to pay restitution. Obviously, they would want her to plead guilty to everything, but... They had to give her some reason to take a plea, mm -hmm. but there has to be some incentive. And everyone, it looks like, had already sold her out. So she doesn't really have people to say, oh, well, I'll give you information on this and this. It does look like what she did have was a large chunk of money. And ideally, what the government wants to do is take that money and give it to the victims to make them whole, to pay them back for the losses that they suffered. So... She just may have had different negotiating tools. But again, she wouldn't have had any incentive whatsoever to take a plea if they didn't either agree to certain things or dismiss some of it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's like a, a negotiation and back and forth. Yeah. Which as of May 25th, 2022, the last we heard, the government said they had not offered Jen a plea deal yet. So sometime between... Then and last week, they started negotiating that and actually brought stuff to the table and vice versa. So that's interesting. But she was so adamant at the reunion that she was going to be the one to fight it. And she was going to be the one that had resources to fight it and be the voice for everyone that can't fight it and just ends up taking a plea or, you know, being found guilty or whatnot. And she didn't. She, she didn't fight it. So I mean, she did, and her attorneys did. I, I just think the investigation the government did in this case for so long prior to even bringing any of these charges was so methodical and so well done. And it's not, I feel like it's not very often people talk about services or government agencies doing a good job at something. And this was a thankless job for a long time, tracking down all of these individual victims, piecing everything together. And I, you can feel proud of your federal government for doing that, for protecting its citizens and for bringing this to light. 
And then also Jen Shaw's defense counsel did their job. They provided a vigorous defense. They really made the government work for the conviction, and they they managed to get the government to agree to a plea deal where one of the charges was dropped. Everybody worked really hard in this case, but I think we can all feel very proud of the investigators and the marshals and everyone that really went out of their way to help these victims of these telemarketing crimes. Because a lot of times people, they're so embarrassed that they got duped by this stuff. But these guys are professionals. The stuff they say, they can get you at a weak moment. Maybe you've just been laid off from a job and you think, okay, maybe this will work. So you make the initial investment and then it just snowballs from there. And then you've got sunk cost fallacy. Just to say this one more time, if you have been duped into this, report it. Go to the DOJ website. There's numbers to report this. Don't be embarrassed. It can happen to the best of us. Everybody makes mistakes, even Louis Vuitton. Yeah, the government in their press release on this plea, at the bottom of it said, if you think that you've been a victim of this scheme, please reach out to us. So there's still the ability to get justice for being defrauded by Jen. I want to make another plug called The Housewife and the Shaw Shocker. Go watch it. It has it has the people, the people that investigated this are on there speaking about what the scheme was, what their investigation was, their victims. So for those who want to know more about some victims and some victims of other crimes like these, go check out that Hulu documentary that we were in. It, it's really well done. So another question that we got a lot was why do we think she waited so long to take the plea? My initial thought, my like gut reaction was that there were a lot of pretrial motions and a lot of decisions that may have been unfavorable to Jen that kind of weakened her defense. And vice versa, there were good orders on the government's motions that maybe made her question how well she would do a trial. What do you think? I am freely admitting I'm speculating here. But I think I've said it before, sometimes it's very difficult to get a white-collar defendant to even understand that what they've done is wrong. They there are A lot of times there's times where these things are just, it, they go right past the line of what's legal. And then they look around and say, well, other people are doing similar things and they're not in trouble. What about multi-level marketing? What about this? And sometimes it's very difficult to convince your client that they did something wrong. The second thing is, is that if the government wasn't offering a plea, that there's no plea to take. So I think there's a combo of things. It's Jen probably didn't have a lot to offer in exchange for a plea. Initially, the government said they weren't offering one, like Ceci said. And then I think Jen and her counsel and her family had, I think Jen had a hard time probably accepting her guilt or accepting the fact that she would have to say she's guilty or accepting the fact that she wasn't going to be able to get away with it. I think it may have taken all the way up to the eve of trial to really convince her that this is the better way to go and that she doesn't have an escape hatch by going to trial. Well, she definitely fought, at least from what we know until, you know, up until the reunion or whenever they record their taglines where she was saying that the only thing she's guilty of is being shot amazing. And it's interesting, this is not very legal, but how Meredith Marks was there with her filming and then Sunday night posts that Instagram story, which was accurate. It said everyone is innocent until proven guilty in the United States. Very true. And then the next day, Jen Shaw pleads guilty. So it seems 
I, I mean, I don't know how close they are now because they weren't really close last season. So just assuming they are close, she didn't even tell Meredith that she was about to plead guilty. Who knows? Who knows? I, I don't know. But it was just interesting. The other co-defendants, their guilty plea dates were on the docket weeks in advance, typically, from when they actually went into court and pled guilty. Here, it was on the docket 10 minutes, 7 minutes before she actually went in and pled guilty. So this was a bit of a surprise for everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think Meredith may have posted that you're innocent until proven guilty because there was sightings of her out with Jen while they were filming and people were probably saying, why are you spending time with her? She's evil. She's bad. And Meredith probably posted that in her own defense as opposed to in defense of Jen is my guess. But mm-hmm. Probably. Yeah. So let's talk about the plea conditions. So like we said, she pled guilty to only count one, which was conspiracy to commit wire fraud in connection with telemarketing. That carries a maximum sentence of 30 years in prison. And that's the max that's prescribed by Congress not necessarily what the judge will give her. However, in the plea agreement that was made public, the government stated that Jen's stipulated guidelines range is 135 to 168 months imprisonment, and that comes out to 11.25 years to 14 years. They say that neither party will take a downward or upward departure from this, the 135 to 168, pursuant to the guidelines, And nor will either party in any way suggest to the probation office or the court to consider a departure or adjustment in the stipulated guidelines. So this just means that they're going to both, both Jen, both the government request something between 135 and 168 months imprisonment. However, the judge could still give her 30 years. It's not guaranteed. Another condition of the plea was that she can't appeal any sentence less than 14 years. So if the judge gives her anything from a month, no months, to 14 years, she can't appeal it. If it's over 14 years, she can't appeal it and try and get the sentence reworked (laughs) in the appellate court. Anything else on that? Yeah. So in the the plea letter, it says, in consideration of the defendant meeting Jin Shah's plea to the above defense, meaning conspiracy to commit wire fraud, the defendant will not be further prosecuted criminally by this office. And then in parentheses, it says, except for criminal tax violations, if any, as to which this office cannot and does not make any agreement for participating in conspiracy to commit wire fraud in connection with the conduct of telemarketing. So we're going to discuss this a little bit later, but there could be some tax issues for both Jen and Coach Shaw that are not taken care of with this plea agreement. So also as part of her guilty plea, she has to forfeit $6.5 million and pay restitution up to $9.5 million. The $6.5 million is what they say was traceable to the scheme as the direct proceeds from the scheme. And the $9.5 million is what victims lost. What is the difference between forfeiture and restitution? What does that mean? Okay. We got a lot of questions about forfeiture versus restitution. It says he said Shaw also agreed to forfeit $6.5 million and to pay restitution up to $9.5 million. The plea letter specifically states that the $6.5 million she's forfeiting, the government doesn't have to apply that to restitution. That doesn't mean that they won't, at least, and I could be wrong, 
But from the way I'm reading the plea letter, it doesn't necessarily be the government won't, but it says you can't expect that. The purpose of restitution is to compensate a victim, while the purpose of forfeiture and fines is to punish the defendant. Basically, like if you have a bunch of money that you got from illegal activities, you don't get to keep that just because you pled guilty. I mean, it's just amazing how much money the scheme made. That's just, and all of those people, it's just, it's mind boggling. So she's got to forfeit $6.5 million and she needs to do that. That's a condition of her plea. So she's got to do that. Then restitution will get paid and that's a separate thing. It gets confusing because it is complicated and there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. But I'm sure her defense attorneys are hoping to get some of the forfeited money applied to restitution. So when forfeited money is paid by the DOJ to a victim in a restitution order, a defendant's restitution obligation is reduced by the amount of forfeited money the victim receives. So long, of course, as the victim actually receives the forfeited money. It's possible that if the amount forfeited to the government is equal to or greater than the amount of restitution order, then a defendant can satisfy both his forfeiture order and the restitution order by paying only the forfeiture order. But that's not going to happen in this case. The forfeiture order is 6.5. The restitution order is 9.5. Again, there are ways to have that applied, but that doesn't mean that necessarily has to happen. And that's not the government trying to keep the money. It's just, it's really complicated how all of this works. There's actually issues with separation of powers. The government can't be compelled by the court to pay forfeited money to a victim in lieu of restitution. It's That's the executive branch and the judicial branch. Obviously, the courts are the judicial branch. And it, there is a separation of powers. And it's the executive branch that's in control of the forfeited money. The attorney general delegates his authority with regard to forfeited money to the chief of the money laundering and asset recovery section of the Department of Justice. And then assistant United States attorneys can't enter into plea agreements that they promise to apply the proceeds of forfeiture to the restitution expected to be ordered by the court unless first authorized to do so by that agency. I didn't see anything in the plea agreement that said that that had been pre-authorized. And with negotiating this plea agreement up right to the eve of trial, they wouldn't have had time. There's a lot of government processes you have to go through. But likely, you know, her attorneys will probably likely try to do that. But there's no there's no guarantee that it has to be done. Did all that make sense, Sessie? Yeah. Okay. I'm a visual person, though. So I like like, it makes sense to me because I'm sitting here reading it and looking at the numbers. (laughs) So before we talk about other questions that we've received, let's discuss Jen Shaw's official statement that she released through her attorney to page six. She said Jen pled guilty because she wants to pay her debt to society and put this ordeal behind her and her family. Ms. Shaw is a good woman who crossed a line. She accepts full responsibility for her actions and deeply apologizes to all who have been harmed. Ms. Shaw is also sorry for disappointing her husband, children, family, friends, and supporters. One thing I don't think we have explained why we always talk about federal charges are so scary, and that's because the federal government has the resources to investigate prior to bringing a charge. Typically, in state or county investigations, say there's a a theft or there's money that's been taken and it gets reported that it's been taken out of a till or something. Then the investigation starts after everyday people have reported the crime. The federal government has the money and the resources to really build their case prior to bringing the charges, which is why we talk about it being so scary. And just like you guys have seen in this case, there was years and years of investigation and all of this groundwork being laid before these charges that we saw were brought against Jen Shaw and Stuart Smith. So they had all of that there. 
which is why it's scarier. And what, what, the point of what I was saying is that if you know you're guilty, and clearly Jen Shaw knew she was guilty, she has now admitted it, funneling your resources towards doing what you can to protect your husband and your children would be a pretty noble thing to do. You know you're going to jail. You know you're going to have to forfeit money. And spending your money and resources on getting a, a quick divorce so anything that Coach Shaw earns in the future isn't somehow commingled or doing something that you can help protect your family, even though you have committed a crime, would have been a really, that would have, that would have been something better for her to do. Yeah, she put everyone through it. And people in her comments even were pointing out how she borrowed her mom's retirement savings, like a million dollars, to defend herself. And she has every right to defend herself. It just, now in hindsight, like looking back at that, it's like, wow. I really hope she, I hope that her mom didn't actually empty her retirement account for her as I think any parent can understand, you're going to do whatever you can for your child. But I'm hoping that that was just on TV and that that didn't actually happen. And I know that's silly for me to think that there would be that type of benevolence or that she would say, no, don't. But in my in my head, I just so awful to think about in my head. I'm just hoping yeah. that maybe that didn't actually happen. So it's a way to cope. <laughs> the best case in- Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So another big question we received is how does she pay restitution if she doesn't have it? All right. Well, this is this comes up a lot with obviously when you're in jail, you really making much more money than is going to be put on your commissary that you can use for things. You think you get paid very minimal. So it's not as if she's going to be making millions of dollars while she's in jail. But we do have another housewives example that we can give you of someone else who's having to pay back restitution, and that is Dana slash Pam Wilkie, the did you know $25,000 with the sunglasses. So Dana pled guilty to misprison of a felony, and I'll explain what that is in a minute. The court reaches an order about the amount of restitution. The court issues an order concerning those amounts that has the defendant's details in it. And then once the order has been entered, the United States Attorney's Office files a lien against the defendant for the full amount of restitution plus interest which will be accrued at whatever the existing legal rate is. And then the federal judgment's good for, one, 20 years from the date of the entry of judgment, or two, 20 years after the release of the person fined, or three, after the death of the individual fined. Much like student loans, you can't get out of this unless you die. Actually, you know what? We can't get out of student loans after 20 years. So it's still, student loans are still worse to try to avoid than... I mean. What's the better path then? Federal restitution order. (laughs) Okay, so Dana, just because we're going to use her as an example because she is currently paying restitution. So Dana was the president of the AdWill agency, and it's a company that provided internet-based marketing services to Blue Shield of California. So during the time period from which she was charged, she engaged in a scheme to defraud Blue Shield of California. And so in the scheme... Defendant meeting Dana would make large payments to Phoenix in exchange for Phoenix assisting outside vendors and assigning vendor. So basically, she was getting vendor contracts that she should not have been getting and then getting kickbacks. And that's healthcare fraud and that's bad. Do not do that. On March 15, 2016, Dana pled guilty to misprison of a felony. She was sentenced to five years of probation. And then she had to, you know, obviously supervision. She had to pay restitution. Her restitution order was $1,047,221. So Dana has been paying that restitution and she's been paying, oh, let's see. We know exactly what she's been paying because she filed an order for early termination of her supervised release. And what she said in the order, and these are Dana's words, so regarding the restitution order in my case, I have been faithful with the payments there too. However, it is mathematically impossible for me to pay the balance of that restitution in the remaining time I have on probation. I pay $200 each month, so it would take me approximately 435 more years to completely pay off this balance. I make this argument only to say that this restitution balance will eventually become a civil judgment against me, whether or not I am allowed off probation now. So this will create no extra work for the financial litigation unit. So she's basically saying, look, it's going to it's going to convert to a civil judgment anyway. It's going to create anybody any extra work. I really don't want to be supervised anymore. And I've been making my $200 a month payments on that over one million dollar restitution amount. So we're saying this to explain that if and when Jen gets out of jail, she will meet with her 
the people supervising her release and come up with a payment plan. And she will be paying on that the entire time. Now, if she gets a book deal or something, they can garnish part of that to pay for the restitution. If she gets any type of income, they can take it. Let's say she gets a large inheritance. Part of that will be garnished. I think typically they don't take everything because you have to have stuff to live off of. But anything, any money that she gets, she has to be honest about and report. And then it's subject to this lien and this restitution order. So she may not ever be able to pay it all off, but she will be making payments for as long as she is alive or 20 years after she gets out of jail. Oh, much like student loans, you can't declare bankruptcy to get out of it either. That won't work. Okay. What's next? Coach Shaw. Okay. Yeah. So Coach Shaw, will he be on the hook? I've seen a big resurgence of people saying there's no way he couldn't have known that she was doing this. I want to reiterate my initial point. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe he knew it all. Who knows? But like the statement that the attorney made where she said that she crossed a line, there is a legal way to do lead generation. And we saw, based on some pretrial motions, that they were going to have an expert witness come in and explain how lead generation works, how it's common in small businesses, et cetera, et cetera. I'm of the mindset that he thought that that is what Jen Shaw was doing. I don't think he knew that there was this fraudulent aspect of it where they were lying about what they were selling and so forth and so forth. So that's my mindset. However, that that doesn't matter for this. So will he be on the hook for any part of the financial responsibility that Jen now has? Well, actually, Ceci, your thoughts and mindset are relevant, but we'll get to that later. But I don't know. I've seen people argue, and I just want to kind of get my thoughts on this real quick. I've seen people argue it both ways. He was an attorney. He should have known. But then again, I have people very close to me who coach college football, and they don't have time to do anything else, it, literally nothing else. So I I don't know. It's it's also difficult to think that she gave a deposition in the FTC investigation and didn't talk to Coach Shaw about it or at least give him some idea of what was, especially since he's an attorney. So it's it's difficult. But will he be on the hook? Okay. This is another really complicated question that we really can't answer with the information we currently have. We haven't seen their tax returns. I don't know if they filed jointly. I don't know what, if any, property they own in common. It doesn't look like, if I recall from the pretrial submissions for her bond hearing, they didn't own any property together. So there isn't anything that they jointly owned during the marriage, it looked like, that could be sold off and then half could go to Coach Shaw and the other half could go to pay Jen's restitution. It's really difficult to say. If there's very large purchases that were made that benefited both of them, is it possible that that stuff could have to be sold? And that if Coach Shaw is a co-owner of some of those things, then that, you know, they could just take the whole thing? It's possible. We just don't have that information. We just don't. And we don't we don't know how they filed their tax returns. Like I was saying before, He's going to need his own federal, basically, team of attorneys experienced in federal criminal defense. He's going to need his own, not because he's necessarily being charged with anything, but like I said, this the restitution versus forfeiture you know, versus who owns what. He's going to be a third party asserting his rights to anything that they own jointly that the court is saying there's a lien on it or should be sold or was from whatever assets that were you know, commingled with 
these illegal funds. It's it's really it's it's really complicated. It requires forensic accounting. It's difficult, and then you have to know how to make those arguments to the federal prosecutors, some of whom aren't necessarily super well versed on all of these types of things. And then there's a different agency that handles in the executive branch that handles it. It's really complicated. So in order to protect anything he's got for him and his sons, that's something he's going to want to look into. I'm still shocked they didn't get divorced right away. That would have been by far the best, in my opinion, course of action, like if they would have just gotten divorced immediately. And then anything he earned after the divorce would not be anything that could be claimed to be joint property. So when he does eventually divorce her, if he does, he's going to want his criminal defense attorneys that are very well versed in this type of financial claims to also work with tax attorneys and with his divorce attorney. He's going to need, he's going to need just, this is going to create work for attorneys. That's <laughs> basically what I'm saying. There's just a lot. There's a lot. So we don't, the point is, we don't know. Is it possible? Yes. But we don't know what they have and what could go where. He should be much more concerned about the tax implications, potentially. So now that, now that I brought up the tax stuff, this is a question I had. So I looked it up. It's literally a question I asked myself. And that is, does Jen have to pay taxes on the $6.5 million she forfeited? And I, th- I thought that was really interesting because, all right, you obtained this money illegally, which is why you're forfeiting it. So you never should have had the money in the first place. But then you did have the money in your possession, which is, you know, you're forfeiting it. So you obviously have it to turn it over. And if you have money in your possession, it's income. Depending, of course, depending on all the taxes or whatever, but like, yeah, that's that's income. And then you have to pay taxes on any federal taxes on any income that you have. Obviously, she wasn't paying taxes on it. We know that from the federal documents. So she's going to owe taxes on that six point five million. There's some, there's obviously nuances. There's there's different types of tax stuff that you can claim for it. But generally, from the courts that I looked at, yes, they're going to owe taxes on that six point five million. So that's where I think Coach Shaw should be much more concerned because if they filed their taxes jointly or that money benefited him, he's going to have a really hard time with the innocent spouse defense, which is something we've brought up with Erica Girardi, a.k.a. Erica Jane. And there are lots of circumstances where the spouses of people committing white-collar crimes had absolutely no idea, no idea and signed joint tax returns and had no idea that their spouse was not claiming the income or proceeds from whatever it was they were doing. And they, the IRS acknowledges that, and so there is a way to claim the innocent spouse defense. So to qualify for innocent spouse relief, you have to file a joint, that means you filed a joint return, you established at the time you signed the joint return that you did not know and had no reason to know that there was an understatement of tax. And then taking into account all the facts and circumstances the IRS can decide that it would be unfair to hold the innocent spouse liable for the understatement of tax. And then here's the other thing. You and your spouse cannot have transferred property to one another as part of a fraudulent scheme. So you have to have very clean hands in order to make this defense. And it has to be reasonable that you wouldn't know that your spouse was underreporting. There's some things obviously that will potentially really count against Coach Shaw. One, he is an attorney. That's it's going to be harder for him to do the Erica Jane defense, which says that she has what she, she, says she has like an eighth grade or 12th grade education. And she kind of acts like she can barely read in court documents. <laughs> much, much, much different than what she says on the show, which is that she could pass the bar or help somebody study for the bar. But yeah, Coach Shaw actually did pass the bar 
on my character. Another thing the IRS is going to look at is, for example, if your spouse just deserts you and leaves and then, you know, is spending all the money on his mistress, that's it. That, that helps for the innocent spouse defense. If you and your spouse are divorced, again, that helps. And then if you received a benefit from the under, like from the understatement on the taxes. So that's, that's another thing. It's just no matter what, he's going to be spending time and money on these types of things. Yep. All right. So let's switch gears and talk about the sentence. So her sentence submission is due November 7th. The hearing is going to be on November 28th. The longest sentence we've seen so far for a co-defendant was 72 months in custody, which is six years. That individual was on the same tier as Jen. And like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, go back and listen to our sentencing episode. There are still some co-defendants who have not been sentenced, like Stu. So there could be a new maximum that we see before her sentencing. And we'll report on that as it is underway. Yeah, look for that in October. There were several co-defendants that their sentencing date hadn't happened yet. So we couldn't say specifically, okay, this is what they got. And then those have all been reset, I believe, for October of this year. So we get, we'll get the, an advance of Jen's November sentencing. We'll get some info in October. So we'll be able to do hopefully an episode then giving those details. Yeah. And so the sentencing submission, she presents any mitigating circumstances that says why she should get a lower sentence or lower punishment, why it should be minimized. Conversely, the prosecution will submit one that has aggravating circumstances to demonstrate why the sentence should be more harsh. Anything else to add on that? No. Again, we're going to go into more detail in another episode. Our last episode, we went into a lot of detail on that. I I really just hope it's not filed under seal so we can read it. I know. Or we should just go to that. <laughs> oh, like, Let's go to the sentencing hearing. Ooh. Right. So then another question we received is what happens now? Is she going to be let off into prison? What happens now? What are the conditions? So before she was in the custody of pretrial services, and I read somewhere that then it gets changed to the Bureau of Prisons. But do you have more insight on that? No, not really. I think we can expect to see some things just like Teresa. So her sentencing is in November. I suspect she'll ask to stay home throughout the end of the year to spend the holidays with their family and then report in the beginning of January. Teresa did something similar. And then she like, what t- happens between now and sentencing? Same well, conditions as before. Yeah. Yeah. She <laughs> and she better toe the line and appear contrite because if she does not and if she acts in a way or speaks out publicly in some sort of way that would seem to indicate she's not accepting responsibility for her actions, that will come back to haunt her at her sentencing hearing 100%. So no, we do not expect her to be coming out and saying anything about, well, yeah, I pled to this, but it was just because the Department of Justice doesn't like me because of whatever thing she comes up with. We do not expect her to say that. I'm sure she has been counseled very strongly to not say those things and to continue, if asked, or forced to to say, yes, I am guilty and I feel terrible. Yeah. Yeah. She has to she really has to watch it right now. Everywhere. Social media, everywhere. So we'll see. Let's talk about like now that she's a felon, she she's a felon. Now that she's a felon, she loses some of her rights. She can't vote. She can't have a gun. Can she have a passport? Is that one of the, the conditions? 
Oh, I, they took her passport away at pretrial, and I would assume she's not going to get that back now that she's admitted she's guilty. Mm-hmm. I, so she's, I don't think you get, and I, somebody can correct us, but I don't think you get your passport back until after you've served your time, <laughs> just because you're still considered to be potentially a flight risk. All right. And then what do we expect to happen at, not to happen, but how does the November 28th hearing go down? What is that like? The So the sentencing submissions will have been submitted. The court, the judge will have read those before the hearing. And then both sides will get to present what they think should happen. And so the Department of Justice, the U.S. attorneys will submit what they think should happen. And Jen's defense counsel and Jen will submit any mitigating circumstances. And again, we talked about that in detail in our previous episodes, but it's going to be them making both sides and trying to, you know, they will be trying to make Jen Shaw appear very human, very, well, her, her defense counsel will very human. They'll bring up anything that she's done in the meantime that might help ameliorate some of these activities. They'll bring up the fact that she has forfeited $6.5 million. Anything that they can do to make her appear more benevolent and contrite, they'll present that. Yeah, I think that'll be a, a good one to follow and go to because we're going to see a lot, I assume, of the evidence that they didn't necessarily put out at trial, the more type of like character evidence against John Shaw. Yeah, yeah. I think this is where, because there won't be the issue of it's it's not going to be prejudicial to a jury if there are numerous clips of her loudly proclaiming her innocence or in this latest season of Salt Lake City, they could use that and quote her from that as an example of, look, she adamantly denied doing anything wrong, lied to everyone on national television, and now she wants you to believe that she's actually contrite. She's not contrite for what she did. She's contrite because she got caught. And I could see instances where a prosecutor could argue something along those lines. All right. Another question we got is what prison do we think she'll go to if she receives prison time as a sentence? I was just looking it up. There's no federal women's prison in Utah. I imagine she would want to be near her family. Yeah, we saw that in co-defendants that got sentenced. They asked to be placed. They asked asked for an order for the Bureau of Prisons to have them placed in New Jersey or areas close to where their family is so that they could visit. If you guys have watched Mob Wives, you've heard arguments about that on Mob Wives, RIP Big Ange. So we think she'll probably ask to be somewhere. At least it's easier for family to visit her, but we don't know where that would be Mm -hmm. necessarily in her mind that would be best for her to argue and ask for. And then the last thing, I think this is the last thing, is whether or not she can withdraw her plea. And she can if there is a valid legal grounds to do so. An example of this would be like if someone wasn't told all of the negative consequences that go alongside accepting the plea or if the prosecutors aren't holding up their side of the deal, you can make a request to withdraw the plea. Yeah. I mean, sometimes defendants do panic and try to claim that their defense counsel didn't adequately advise them or that they were under duress or that they didn't understand what they were pleading guilty to or they didn't understand the consequences, which is why the courts in the plea hearings 
will say, are you on any medications that would make you unable to understand or recognize the consequences of what you're saying today? Did your defense attorney who's standing right next to you, did they tell you, did they explain to you A, B, and C? And they make the defendant has to say out loud, yes, it's not their attorney speaking for them. It's actually the defendant saying, yes, are you pleading guilty because you are guilty? The judge asked that in this case, and Jen Shaw said, yes. There's a whole sequence of questions that gets asked at the change of plea hearing to ensure that all of these things have been done correctly so that the defendant can't somehow claim, oh, wait, no, never mind. Mm-hmm. I, I, I I didn't understand. My defense attorney didn't tell me I was on drugs, but I forgot. Because when they try to make that argument, the record is going to show that they did have adequate representation, that they did know that they weren't on medications that would stop them from understanding. So that's why all of those things get asked. She could try. She could panic and try to change her plea, but it's it's not... I would give the chance of that being successful as one-tenth of one-half of one (laughs) percent. Yeah, we forgot to note that at her hearing, along the same lines of what you were just saying, the judge explicitly said, do you understand by pleading guilty, you're not going to hear the witnesses that were against you. You're not going to have the opportunity to cross-examine them. Do you understand that you're waiving your right to trial? And she had to say yes. Anything else you want to talk about? I think we got all of the questions. I think so, too. Let me see. Yeah, I guess some people some people were confused about the date. So, yeah, she's being sentenced after Thanksgiving. It's the sentencing submission that's early November. Yeah, I think it's the sentencing submission is November 8th and then... 7th. It's, and then yeah. the, second, the hearing is the 28th. Yeah, people asked if she's going to try and spin it like she's the victim. And we mentioned it wouldn't be wise given that sentencing is around the corner. I think that's it. I think we covered it all. You want to close this out? Sure. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We are just so overjoyed that people came to us when this news broke. We're happy to be a source of information for all things pop culture, legal, all that. Thank you for reaching out to us when this all broke. Follow us on Instagram. We occasionally update our Twitter. We have a Patreon and we try to prioritize responding to questions to our patrons because we do run short on time sometimes. And thank you guys so much for listening and legal team. If you have more questions, just let us know. All right. Thanks everyone. Bye guys. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Want to know what it takes to make a million bucks? Check out My First Million. Every week we dive into different business opportunities and explain how to pounce on them. From one-man online operations to brick-and-mortar strategies, we cover it all. So whether it's your first million followers or dollars, start getting inspired with My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. The Bravo Docket is part of the Acast Creator Network.